You're listening to the Honduras Now podcast. I share human rights stories from Honduras and connect them to global issues and North American policy. I'm your host, Karen Spring. I've lived and worked in Honduras as a human rights activist and researcher for over 11 years. Thanks so much for listening. Looking forward to sharing a great episode with you. Hello all, and saludos from Honduras. Yep, that's right, I made it back. All of your finger crossing and good wishes definitely helped. So I flew into Honduras two days ago, on Wednesday. There was a lot of protocol once landing and getting through customs. I had to show that I got a COVID-19 test and the results back within 72 hours of landing in the country. That was kind of stressful to coordinate, but it ended up working out in the end. So I'm back home in Tegucigalpa, and now I have to move. I have to get out of my house before the end of the month. So yeah, that's not going to be very much fun. So to jump into today's episode, in episode five, I mentioned I was going to talk about the one-year anniversary of the release and the freedom of my partner, Edwin Espinal, and another political prisoner who was also jailed with him, Raul Alvarez. But I'm going to save that episode for the next one, only because I found some great material that I want to incorporate into it. And with all the traveling and the five months of being away from Honduras and now finding out I have to move... I need a little bit more time to prepare for it. I know that's like the worst way to start a podcast episode, but I figured I promised I would talk about it, but I will eventually, just not this episode today. But I still have a really interesting episode that I want to share with you today. I want to say that there's a lot that has been going on in Honduras, as usual. Hondurans are painting the words, where is the money? all over the place, in rural areas and urban cities, and they're referring to the billions of dollars allegedly allocated to the COVID-19 response or certainly aren't reflected in the state of the healthcare system or the ability of the government to date to actually deal with the crisis caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. And so where is the money and painting it everywhere on roads and huge letters on walls all around the country is sort of a way that Hondurans are protesting and demanding to know what's been going on with public funds. It's also been a month since the disappearance of the Garifuna leaders, the four Garifuna leaders that were disappeared from the Triunfo de la Cruz community, and there is still no word on their whereabouts, and next to nothing has been said about the alleged investigation that the Honduran government is doing. Well, except that they keep saying, the government keeps saying that they are investigating, but no details are ever given. For today's episode, I'm really excited to share an interview with Dr. Chris Loperena. It's super informative and jam-packed with details connecting the politics of local tourism in Honduras to global issues and policies. Chris also shares his personal experiences of first traveling to Honduras and also connects what the Garifuna are facing in Honduras today to global anti-blackness. So let me introduce Dr. Chris Loperena. Chris just has a way of explaining the global tourist industry in Honduras, land struggles, particularly Garifuna land issues, and also conservation and environmental protection policies in Honduras. Chris is an assistant professor of anthropology at the CUNY Graduate Center, which for Canadians that aren't as familiar, that is the City University of New York. His research examines indigenous and black territorial struggles and the socio-spatial politics of economic development in Honduras. 
Chris spent a significant amount of time in Honduras to do this research. Chris has also published in many academic journals. He's working on a book project called A Fragmented Paradise, Blackness and the Limits of Progress in Honduras. And he served as an expert witness in the, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, specifically on the case, The Land Issues in Triunfo de la Cruz. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. So Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Karen, for the invitation. So would you start by talking a little bit about how you started working and doing research in Honduras? Sure. Um, I actually, the first time I went down to Honduras was just after I was wrapping up my undergraduate studies at the University of Chicago. And I went down with a, a group of friends, fellow college students, to do a project sort of a technology training project or a computer training project with COPIN, and that's the Civic Council of Popular and Indigenous Organizations of Honduras, which was then under the leadership of Berta Cáceres. And so um, in 2003, I packed up, went down to Honduras, thought I would be there for about three months working with COPIN, training COPIN activists in computer technology, in internet usage, and, and just kind of communication tools that they could use to advance their struggle. And then I ended up staying for six months. And during that period, Copin was organizing a very large forum on indigenous rights against hydroelectric dams and in defense of biodiversity and all these very important issues that were impacting not only Lenca indigenous communities in Western Honduras, but indigenous and Afro-descendant communities throughout the Americas. And so part of the objective of our computer training seminar was actually to help them prepare for that very large forum in which people were coming from all over the Americas to Honduras to learn about these issues and to dialogue about them. And it was during that forum that I first met OFRANE, which is the Black Fraternal Organization of Honduras, and Miriam Miranda. I was really struck by the strength of their relationship and bond, and also really curious to learn more about what was happening on the Caribbean coast of Honduras in Garifuna communities. So then I ended up going down to the Caribbean coast. Actually, the first Garifuna community I ever visited was Triunfo de la Cruz in Tela. And that's sort of how the work for my graduate studies began. I was there first as an activist. And then when I started graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin, I was selected for this fellowship to go back down to Honduras and to work directly with OFRANE and the Caribbean and Central America Research Council in support of Garifuna territorial claims on the north coast of Honduras. So you could say that Honduras kind of sucked you in then, kind of like it did with me. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> what is it about Honduras that, that does that to people? Because there's other activists that tell me a lot or other and researchers and people that visit. They say, you know, I was only supposed to be here for a month or two or a couple weeks or two, but I changed my flight and I'm going to stay longer. I mean, it's an ex there are many things about Honduras that uh, for me really penetrated 
Um, one is just the kind of natural beauty of the country. It's an extraordinary landscape, incredibly diverse. But there's also the kind of cultural, geographic diversity, you know, seeing the Garifuna communities for the first time and understanding that these were Afro-Caribbean communities. And my family is 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 from the Caribbean, uh, originally from Puerto Rico. So seeing that and understanding that that's also very a very kind of formative component of Honduras and Honduran culture, uh, even though it's often marginalized in relation to the kind of mestizo majority, it is a very important part of Honduran history and Honduran culture. And so I was inspired by the commitment of, of the activists that I was interacting with, inspired by their really really um, expansive knowledge of the issues and their ability to communicate and teach me about what struggles they were involved in and how they were going about trying to obtain their different political objectives. And I just learned so much and I, I got sucked right into it. So you mentioned that you went to Triunfo de la Cruz. And in the last episode of this podcast, I discussed the disappearances of four Garifuna men from Triunfo de la Cruz on July 18th. And these disappearances have caused the community of Triunfo demanding that these men be returned alive and unharmed. And so I want to talk a little bit about like the context in which uh, this happened. And many believe that the disappearances of these men are connected to the vocal activism of some of the disappeared men, including the president of the elected community council or the patronato, as it's called in Spanish, Snyder Centeno. So Ofrene has been referring a lot to international court the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, which issued a sentence that is related to the Garifuna land struggles in Telebay, which is right where the Garifuna leaders were disappeared. And I wanted to ask you about this because you are very knowledgeable about um, this. You did your research on it and you have a special connection to it. So could you tell us what is this Inter-American Court? What is this 2015 court ruling and what might it have to do with these recent disappearances of the Garifuna in Triunfo de la Cruz? Yeah, um, that's an excellent question. So the Inter-American Court of Human Rights is part of the Inter-American Human Rights System, which includes the court and the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. It's basically an international human rights body that falls under the umbrella of the Organization of American States. So all kind of member states of the OAS can access this international legal body to adjudicate cases of international importance involving human rights violations. And so when you go to the Inter-American Court, you actually first go to the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights. So the, the case that went to hearing, the hearing was in 2014, I believe, and the judgment was issued in 2015 uh, with regard to the Garifuna community, Trumpo de la Cruz versus the state of Honduras. But the commission was reviewing and researching the claims of the community for probably around a decade. 
So when a community or an individual brings a case to the commission, the commission kind of reviews it, it reviews what they consider to be the merits of the case and decides whether or not it should actually advance to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. And then once it advances to the court, a hearing is scheduled and then the judges decide on the case. And so that's what took place in Triunfo de la Cruz. What's important to understand here is that the conflicts over land in, in Triunfo de la Cruz stem back several decades, but really sort of intensified in, in around the 1990s with the advent of tourism as like a really focused state development priority. And that actually coincided as well with the passage of Hurricane Mitch, which devastated Honduras in 1998 and really, really decimated the largely agriculture-based economic uh, activity that the country was dependent on for growth. And so in that vacuum in, that was left as, as a result of the hurricane, state authorities and international financial institutions such as the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund sort of came together and said, hey, you have this beautiful country, you have hundreds of miles of pristine white sand coastline on the Caribbean coast, this could be a really phenomenal place to develop tourism. And so it's around that time that those plans to develop a, a robust kind of tourism industry in Honduras took off. And that led to all sorts of conflicts over lands within the Garifuna communities. Because again, the Garifuna communities lay claim to some of the most gorgeous and some of the most coveted stretches of coastal property in Honduras. And so their lands were all, all of a sudden very much in kind of the purview of state developers, of investors, of international financial institutions. And that generated a number of conflicts between the communities and incoming investors, state authorities, international financial institutions, but also within the communities themselves, there were conflicts around land that were starting to emerge. And it's important to understand that the land historically within the Garifuna communities has been held in common. So the land is, is collectively owned essentially by the community and individuals within that larger collective can lay stake to a particular parcel of land but according to their customary land rights practices they can't sell that land to non-Garifuna and presumably because the Honduran state ratified International Convention 169 on indigenous and tribal rights presumably the state is supposed to safeguard those rights the collective rights in particular of the community. But instead, what we've seen happen, and this is one of the things that became really central in the court case, is that local authorities in the municipality of Tela were actually sanctioning land sales within the collective title of that belonged to the community. And that, again, is because there was money to be made, right? Um, mm -hmm off of the development of these lands. And so the case really, um, it, it took many years to get to the court, but once it got to the court, there was quite a bit of evidence that demonstrated state complicity in the violation of Garifuna territorial rights. And eventually the decision, which came out in 2015, 
the ruling of the court was that indeed the, the state had been complicit in the violation of these rights, of, of Garifuna rights to property, and that therefore uh, the community was entitled to a number of reparations. So, I mean, this is really important because in Honduras, the impunity rate is so high and the court system, a lot of people think that the judicial system in Honduras is very weak, but it's it's not. It just is strong when it wants to be and very weak when it when it wants to be. And in the cases of land rights, especially for indigenous and Afro-indigenous folks, a lot of the times they depend on this court to sort of help them deal with some of these issues. I mean, they can't really challenge, bring their their cases to the Honduran courts because they're always ruled against or it's not fair, there's a high impunity rate, there's nothing, nothing happens, there's no investigations, the, the judges like rule against the interests of the communities, even though it's very clear, at least when you examine the evidence, that could be and should be maybe different, the ruling. And so they go to these courts and, you know, this inter-American court and commission first and then the court, like you mentioned, and then so this, they issued a ruling in 2015 and so one of the things that Ofrene is saying is, is that the state has not basically listened to the ruling. They haven't, they don't want to comply with it. That's and right. did you see any sort of repression or sort of any, or, or maybe read about it or studied any sort of fallout for Garifuna communities or Garifuna leaders that uh, speak very vocal about this issue, whether it's the court ruling or whether the fact that their lands are being stolen from them, is there a consequence for them when they speak out? Oh, absolutely. 100%. So what's really, I mean, there are several things that I think it would be important for your listeners to understand. One is that the conflicts over land uh, within Garifuna communities have been very violent. And in fact, there were several prominent land activists in Triunfo de la Cruz that were killed over the course of this period of time from like the late 1990s until the moment at which the court decided on the case in 2015. So many people have been targeted, many people have been assassinated, and, and, and in, in most cases, these people have been killed without kind of proper judicial and juridical processes playing out around the investigation and the and the kind of holding uh, of people accountable for those murders. So essentially, they've been carried out with impunity. And so it creates a real situation of land tenure insecurity for people within the community, right? Miriam mm-hmm. uh, Miranda has said that there's a campaign of terror against the Garifuna communities. And you can see that when you talk about the number of Garifuna that have been killed for trying to defend their, 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 the rights to their lands and to their territory. And so, you know, it's very important that we bring attention to the violent nature of these conflicts and the ways in which Garifuna activists have been targeted and affected by these, uh, these attempts to kind of expropriate their lands for uh, the purposes of development, whether it be in tourism in the agribusiness industry. Another thing that's very important to understand, during the the hearing, uh, the state lawyers for Honduras argued, even though Garifuna are one of nine officially recognized, they use the language ethnic groups or grupo etnicos, the state authorities in the court hearing argued that the Garifuna were not actually indigenous 
that they weren't a pueblo originario, that they weren't indigenous to Honduras, and therefore tried to negate the legitimacy of their claims to national territory. And this is so even though Garifunam were in Honduras before Honduras gained full independence from its colonial, uh, uh, from, from Spain. So it was before it became a modern nation state, Garifuna were on those lands on the Caribbean coast of Honduras. And so, you know, the, the argument that Garifuna are not indigenous or that they are not native to Honduras, that they are this foreign group of greedy land usurpers is historically erroneous. Uh, and there's no basis really for that type of an argument to be formulated, but that is indeed the argument that the Honduran state lawyer attempted to make, which again speaks to the ways in which the kind of presence of black peoples in Honduras is repeatedly negated and relegated to a space outside the sovereign boundaries of the Honduran state. Yeah, that's very important because it continues today. I mean, the state continues that claim. And I'm sure it's one of the reasons that they're that they may say they won't comply with the 2015 ruling of the court. Right. Um, OK, Chris, you mentioned that there's foreign the ID or the Inter-American Development Bank, which I don't think you mentioned, but it's kind of the same as the IMF and the World Bank. A lot of people ask me, they want the names of the companies, the tourist companies, and who's funding these tourist projects that are stealing Garifuna land. And it's often hard to know the names of these companies, and it takes some time to investigate if it's not really made clear, and people want to know how that funding works. But I'm going to put you on the spot, because um, these are really complex issues uh, to explain in such short periods of time. But you know, can you talk about how these foreign economic interests team up with specific groups in Honduras to push these types of tourist projects through? You know, I, I see it with Canadian companies in another bay, in Trujillo Bay, which is another bay along the northern coast, beautiful bay as well, just like Tela Bay. But and I'm, I'm not as familiar with the Tela Bay tourist developments there. So you know, I, I know there's processes in which these things unfold on the ground, in which there's a process of land transfer from land that's inside the community titles, and then it gets passed into another name of a private tourist developer. And, I mean, can you talk a little bit about these things, or how do these processes work, both with foreign interests and national interests, and then just how it, it happens? Yeah, I think I really appreciate this question, Karen, because uh, what you're speaking to is, is actually something that I think is somewhat intentional uh, on the part of investors in the state. And that is an attempt to make these sort of deals actually very, very murky and difficult to comprehend. There's a law for public-private partnership, PPP, as it's known. And what that allows for is for public entities within the state, for instance, like the, the Honduran Institute for Tourism, to come together in partnership with private entities. And here I'm referring to developers. Many times they're actual, actually national developers, you know, uh, very prominent Honduran businessmen. But a lot of those individuals are getting 
support and investment from international actors. And in some cases, for instance, in the case of the now deceased Miguel Pacuse, who was once, when he was alive, he was the largest landholder or landowner in all of Honduras. And he was a very, very prominent individual in the in the establishment of African palm plantations along the North Coast. And he's re- he received funding and support, for instance, from international financial institutions like the World Bank for some of his investments in those projects. So it's not, it's a very complicated constellation of actors that sort of merges the public and the private in these ways that make it very difficult to understand who's who and what's what. And so in the case of Tel Aviv, you can see that really seriously, or really clearly, I should say. The kind of emblematic tourism project in Honduras is the Indura Beach and Gulf Resort. And Indura used to be known as the Los Micos Project. It first was conceived actually in the 1970s under the name Tornasal. Um, and it's gone through all of these kind of iterations. And, and so the Indura Project is located in, in between the Garifuna communities of Miami and Tornabe and Tela, and in the buffer zone of the Janet National Park. It was finally inaugurated in 2014. So you see it was initially conceptualized in 1970s and actually finally opens in 2014. It's pitched as an eco resort. It's quite beautiful. It's it's right on, it's on a strip of land kind of between the ocean and this extraordinary natural reserve. But it also, ironically, as an eco-resort, it has an 18-hole golf course, it has 60 junior suites, a convention center, a fitness center, a spa, multiple restaurants. It's quite a robust development, and there are plans to build it out further along the western edge of the resort, which abuts, of course, the Garifuna area of Baravieja. So it's a very controversial project, and the funding for this project also came about through this public-private partnership between the the Honduran Institute of Tourism and what is known as the Telebay Touristic Development Society. Now, it's important to recognize here that Camilo Atala, who is one of the most prominent businessmen in all of Honduras, is actually very closely associated with the Honduran Tourism Investment Fund. I believe at one point he was the president and he also sits on the board for the Indura Resort. He was also president or is president of the Grupo Financiero Ficosa, which is one of the largest financial institutions of all of Central America. So you can see very clearly the the kind of, again, the constellation of actors and the, the network of capital between that kind of threads together those different actors at different levels between state authorities, international investors or actors, and these very elite Honduran business families that are sometimes, you know, they're sometimes referred to as the Honduran oligarchy because of their power and influence within the country. So, and you mentioned something that is actually right leads into my next question because it's coming up constantly now in Honduras in different conflicts around the country. For example, there's a conflict with mining inside a natural natural reserve in Colón, the department of Colón, and there's um, eight people that are imprisoned because they're trying to stop the mine. That's the Wapinol, as well as in Tegucigalpa. They're trying to build like a really wealthy gated community inside the Tigra National Park. 
um, which is a protected area, and several residents and communities in Tegucigalpa, in the capital city, are also trying to stop the building of that residential gated community in this park. And so, you know, you talk about this a lot in the academic articles that, that you've written, that, and it basically refers to the impact of the creation of these natural reserves or these parks or these state-managed protected areas in Honduras. And in my experience, and, and this is ongoing, like I said, these protected areas or these national parks are often not protected when it's not in the interests of the Honduran government to do so, or the interests of uh, or private um, investment. So it's interesting, too, because when people hear protected area or natural reserve or national park or ecotourism, they automatically think that these are wonderful and important state-led initiatives. Who would be against protecting the environment? And that's sort of what these terms project when you hear them. So I know you've done a lot of research and analysis on this. Can you talk about the controversies behind the creation of these natural reserves or protected areas in Honduras and what they have meant, what the creation of these uh, parks or reserves have meant for Afro-Indigenous or Indigenous populations or non-Indigenous populations in Honduras? Uh, thank you. Yes, I, I'm happy to talk to that um, or to speak to that. It's actually, I was I was struck by precisely those same sort of contradictions uh, when I first learned about the controversies surrounding the establishment of protected areas in Honduras. Um, and it's important to note that like many of these protected areas are located in areas mm -hmm. that are actually claimed by indigenous uh, and black Hondurans as their ancestral territories. So what happens often is that the, the creation of a protected area kind of overlays a management regime for the natural resources in that area on top of the territorial claims and the communities that pre-existed the creation of those protected areas. And so, of course, that creates a situation in which there's conflict. You know, all of a sudden, in the case of, um, of Tela again, which is the area I know best, you have, for instance, the Punto Isopo National Park, which is on the eastern end of Triunfo de la Cruz. Okay, so let me just break this down a little bit. One of the reasons why Triunfo de la Cruz is such a desirable place for tourism investors and for the kind of tourism development agenda of uh, Honduran state officials is because of its proximity to these natural areas, right? It's on, again, it's on, it's on a strip of uninterrupted, white sand coastline, and it's meshed between Cerro Triunfo de la Cruz, which is a, a large, rocky, dramatic hill on the western side, and the Punto Isopo National Park on the eastern end. And it's in very close proximity to the Lancetia Botanical Garden in Tela, which is one of the largest in Latin America, the Cuero Isalado Wildlife Reserve, and the Jeanette Kawas National Park, which I already mentioned. So you have all of these very prominent and important areas of kind of potential nature tourism that are located within a very short distance of really beautiful Garifuna community, which also has this unique culture, the Garifuna language, the Garifuna music, dance, the food. So, you know, there was a very concerted effort on the part of developers, private and public, that said, hey, there's a real opportunity here to develop this 
for the purposes of tourism. And so the parks play a really fundamental role in that larger tourism development agenda for the region of Tella. But the parks themselves are presented as, again, as, as, as an attempt to kind of preserve the natural environment, to protect the resources within that area. But they work together. They kind of interlock or articulate with very closely development objectives that are at their root extractivist in nature. And so I wanted to, I want to get into that a little bit more because what the the protected area does not mean that you can't engage in extractive economic activities within the area that is designated as protected. There are kind of zones within that area and there's for instance there's the nucleus zone of a park of a protected area. And in that area, no sort of economic activities related to the extraction of the resources within the park are permitted, right? Zones that move out from the nucleus area of the park in which different levels and intensities of extractive economic activities are permitted. So you can have something like the Indura Beach and Gulf Resort constructed on lands that are protected but that are considered to be the buffer zone of a protected area, which allows, again, for certain forms of economic uh, development and extractive economic activity to take place. And, and so you have that kind of complexity in how the, the, the resources are protected and managed in, at different kind of scales of intensity within the area that's designated as protected. And then you also have the ways in which the rights of the people that have lived in those areas for hundreds of years are being restricted suddenly because the area has been declared protected. So how do you explain, for instance, that you can build an 18-hole golf course on top of lands that are presumably protected, but you're telling Garifuna fishermen who have fished in those lands I should be more clear, who have fished, for instance, in the waters off the coast of the Jeanette Kawas National Park or in the Los Micos Bay for hundreds of years, all of a sudden you're telling them, no, you can't engage in those activities because it's a damage to the natural environment or because it's a threat to the protection of the resources within that protected area. So you have all these really significant contradictions in, in kind of policy around protected areas that are pre precisely designed to buttress the kind of economic development objectives of state uh, development authorities and to diminish the rights and sovereignty of Black and Indigenous peoples over the resources within their territories. And we saw that really, really clearly in, in one of my articles, uh, I wrote about the case of a fisherman in Triunfo de la Cruz who was killed while fishing in the Cuero y Salado Wildlife Reserve. So again, Cuero y Salado Wildlife Reserve is west, is to the west of Triunfo de la Cruz. It's an area where Garifuna historically have always been present and have always used for their own kind of nature reserve and for fishing and other types of resource extraction, but small scale resource extraction for subsistence purposes mostly. And so this fisherman was on a fishing expedition with several other Garifuna men, 
and they were intercepted by a um, a naval boat that was commissioned as um, to to protect the resources within the Cuero y Salado Reserve. And when they came upon the when the naval boat came upon the fishermen, they said, "Hey, what are you doing out here? You can't be fishing with a trammel net because they were using a trammel net, and that's prohibited within the nucleus zone of the park." And then they shot at the boat. This was in the middle of the night. They shot at the boat. They shot at the engine of the boat. One of the passengers was hit, and he eventually died. And so you can see, I mean, it's really, I think for me, it's really important to understand that no, you know, although we made, there's a popular perception that the protected areas are good for the environment, that you're protecting the natural resources, and Honduras is a place with, with extraordinary natural resources. But the way that those protected areas are being managed or mismanaged is very detrimental to many of the communities that have depended historically on those lands and those resources for their subsistence. And I think that the case of the fishermen that was killed also kind of demystifies the role of the state in these kind of configurations of kind of public-private partnership as it pertains to, to the development objectives that I've been mentioning, right? Because it's public resources, public resources such as the security forces of the state, public resources such as the courts of the state that are used to protect the rights and assets of predominantly private investors. So Chris, as you're talking, I'm like thinking a lot about how I hear about these exact same issues globally. You know, in Central America, you, you even hear about this stuff happening in the United States and the controversies of, of rules that this, or laws that the state uses and then tries to police um, indigenous communities in the United States or in Canada or in any other globally, really. And you mentioned before that in the 90s in Honduras, you know, a lot of the international financial institutions came along and said, wow, you have this beautiful coast, like, why don't you develop for tourism? And so I don't know if you've gone this far to research it a little bit more or no, just, you know, can you draw some of the links with these policies of preserving land, but only but very selectively in Honduras, more with like global interests and global actors that are not just implementing and, and encouraging the Honduran state to implement these kinds of things, but, you know, internationally or globally. Yeah, I mean, again, so for, for instance, you can't actually understand what's happening in Honduras without taking into account the kind of global context in which these uh, initiatives are unfolding. So, for instance, the Honduran tourism agenda was was really born from a collaboration between the Honduran state and the World Bank. So there was this very important project that was funded by the World Bank that was called the National Sustainable Tourism Program, I believe was the name of this initiative. And it was a very large study to determine whether sustainable tourism was viable in Honduras, right? But again, sustainable in the kind of unsustainable ways that we've been talking about about in our conversation. And so it was global actors from the outset that were involved in helping to formulate these plans and seeing the touristic potential and saying, okay, you need to, to have 
designated protected areas. You need to have areas that are protected for the kind of consumptive practices of incoming tourists, you know, so that they can enjoy the nature, the beach, etc. But you also have to do so in a way that allows for other types of economic growth and activities to flourish. And so that's something that we see happening in Honduras, but it's a pattern that is happening throughout the Americas and in other parts of the world, in other parts of the developing world. These are these are practices that are being kind of conceptualized by development authorities within large multilateral development institutions and in dialogue with state development officers and authorities. And so you have, again, that kind of nexus of actors coming together to, to, to put these plans into place and to implement them and not just in Honduras, but in many other parts of the world. And so these are things that scholars have been writing about for some time, actually. And it's an old practice. And scholars have written about the ways in which the establishment of these protected zones actually has been really detrimental to the rights of the people that live in those areas and that subsisted on those resources prior to the establishment of those protected areas. You can see that in many cases, like Yellowstone National Park in the United States, for instance. You know, many, many national parks entail some of those sort of same dynamics. So I, yeah, it's not specific to Honduras and we can't make sense of what's happening in the case of Honduras unless we understand the kind of networks of individuals and institutions operating at the global and national level that are coming together to conceive of these projects. Now that you're talking about, you know, these global connections, these global actors, I wanted to ask you a final question. You know, you're based in New York. You've spent a lot of time in Honduras, but I wanted to ask you if you see any parallels about what is happening in Honduras with the Garifuna and what's going on with Black Lives Matter protests and the state response or discussions in the United States. Yeah, I, I really appreciate this question, Karen, because I think it's very important, actually, to understand the kind of global dimensions of anti-Blackness that we see unfolding both in the case of Honduras and in the case of the United States and in other parts of the world. So, you know, I've been really troubled by what's been happening here in the United States. The, the violence against Black communities in this country has a very long and painful history. And it keeps coming to light in these really extraordinary acts of, of state violence against individuals such as George Floyd. And it's opening up conversations around systemic racism, which for me haven't really been that prevalently discussed in the media before, but now we're having more conversations about systemic racism and sort of the historical origins of anti-Blackness in this country. Where does it come from? Why is it that, you know, disproportionately Black communities are faced with this type of targeted state violence? Why is it that disproportionately Black communities have higher levels of poverty? Why is it disproportionately that Black communities have higher levels of diabetes and other 
systemic health problems. And so those conversations are starting to come to light now, and we're really having to grapple with our history, which is a very kind of grotty history. And and I think it's important to understand that the types of anti-Black racism that exists in in the United States are, again, they're not confined to this country. We have this type of anti-Black racism affecting very, very significantly Black communities in Latin America as well, including in Honduras. Anti-Blackness is alive and well in Honduras, and it is having very significant impacts on the Garifuna communities and manifests in a variety of ways. Again, it manifests in this kind of insistence on the part of the mestizo state, you know, mestizos being kind of the dominant racial group in Honduras, that Black people are not native to Honduras, you know, that Blackness is this thing that belongs somewhere else, but not in Honduras, despite the fact that Garifuna have been in Honduras for over 200 years. It manifests in legal politics that seek the expulsion of Garifuna from the nation. It manifests in development policies that seek to expropriate the resources, the lands, uh, the natural kind of beauty that Garifuna lay claim to within their territories for the purposes of development. And that leads to the displacement of Garifuna from their communities. So, for instance, that's been one of the big things for Garifuna that have been seeking asylum here in the United States. And they've been fleeing their communities because not only are they confronting this campaign of terror, but they're being pushed off of their lands. Their access to lands that are fundamental for their ability to continue subsisting and living on the coast are being restricted greatly by these conflicts and by these developments. And so in many cases, there's a push for them to leave those communities. They're being displaced from their communities. And in some cases, they're coming to the United States seeking asylum. And so we have to understand, I think, the global nature of anti-Blackness and how it's playing out in these different contexts, but also the connections between them. Thanks so much, Chris. That's It's really interesting because where you're located is actually in New York, and that's where one of the largest Garifuna communities outside of Central America, I think it is the largest outside of Central America. Um, of Garifuna folks and you know a lot of people a lot of the Garifuna when they go to the states they experience um, the racism and the anti-blackness like you mentioned um, in a different way but it's not not in a different way than other like black folks in the U.S. but in a different way because they identify as Garifuna as well and then they come back to Honduras when they're deported or they want to go back to their families and they are experiencing this expulsion from their territory, so they don't even have lands to go back to um, and a way to sort of um, feed their families and stay in the country when they're being, you know, expelled from the United States and then expelled from their own lands in Honduras. So I think I'll, I'll wrap up the interview with you. This has been so much great information, and it really explains, like, so many of the root causes and very specific contextual issues in order for people to understand these recent disappearances of these four Garifuna guys from Triunfo de la Cruz. But I wanted to ask you if there's anything that I missed asking you or something that you wanted to add in case you missed anything. 
I think, you know, again, I just want to reiterate that Media Miranda stated recently that the communities are facing a campaign of terror and of extermination. And it is true that several prominent community leaders affiliated with Ofrane have been killed in recent months. And it builds on this very worrisome legacy of violence against land and environmental activists in Honduras. I think these are serious, serious patterns that merit attention and action on the part of the authorities there, but also the international community. It's a type of violence and harm that affects not only the individuals that have been targeted, but the entire community, and it jeopardizes their presence, their continued presence in Honduras. So I'll end with my comments there. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, your knowledge about Honduras and the Garifuna struggles across the coast, but you know, in Telebase specifically, is so important and so relevant right now. I'm really looking forward to reading your book once it's out and published, but I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Karen. So there you have it, a great informative interview with Dr. Chris Loparena. Lots of great information and digging deeper into anti-blackness and global tourist policies and the global actors that team up with wealthy Honduran families to promote tourism in the country in so many circumstances to the detriment of Garifuna ancestral land titles and the Garifuna themselves. So that's it for the episode today. Again, thanks so much for listening. Please leave a review in Apple Podcasts or consider donating at HondurasNow.org. Also, get in touch. Let me know what you think of the podcast or topics you would like to hear. Check out the show notes, which I post a few days after the episode goes live at HondurasNow.org. Thanks so much for your support and for listening. Until next week, this is your host, Karen Spring, signing off. Mm-hmm.